It's Wednesday, September 20th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. U.S. Attorney General Merritt Garland testified before the House Judiciary Committee today. They wanted answers. About what? Well, some about what David Weiss, the special prosecutor that Trump appointed, you got to say that Trump appointed special prosecutor. Garland said that about 300 times. What's he been up to? He's been less Sam Waterston from Law and Order, more Lionel Hutz from The Simpsons. Okay, maybe it's not fair to assert that Weiss has been hutzing it up left and right, but he did let a statute of limitations expire and he did write up a plea deal a federal judge threw out. Can Merritt Garland answer for that? Well, he can, sort of. He could give one answer, which he did give 300 times, but it was a true answer. He said, I appointed Weiss. I gave him all the powers he asked for when he asked for them. And then I consciously had nothing to do with the case. You can imagine that was not that popular an answer. And the Q&A format allows for a lot of grandstanding, speechifying, and asking extremely hard to answer questions, leading to the third, 53rd, 103rd time, Merrick Garland asserts that he was not involved in the investigation. I did not uh, endeavor to investigate because I had promised that I would not interfere with this investigation. The way to not interfere is to not investigate an investigation. If you want to zoom out and examine one of the threads the Republicans are chasing, I commend you to read my Substack post, Broken Shokin Theory. It's a good one. If you want to find out how to get there, just check out the show notes on the phone you're listening to this podcast on, unless you're not listening on a phone, maybe it's hand cranked. Anyway, the Republicans on the committee eventually got bored or distracted, or I don't know, they just thought there were some other pressing matters at hand. Thomas Massey of Kentucky grilled Garland for his prosecutions in the January 6th riots. Meanwhile, you're sending grandmas to prison. Grandmas. Jeff Van Drew of New Jersey ripped into Garland for a different kind of bias. Attorney General, through the chair, I ask you, do you agree that traditional Catholics are violent extremists? I have no idea what what the traditional uh, means here. Catholics that go to church. May I answer your question? Yes or no? The idea that someone with my family background would discriminate against any religion is so outrageous, so absurd. Mr. Attorney General, it was your FBI that did this. It was your FBI that was sending, and we have the memos, we have the emails, we're sending undercover agents into Catholic churches. Both I and the director of the FBI have said that we were appalled have said that we were appalled by that memo. So then you agree that they're not extremists? We were appalled by that memo. Are they extremists or not, Attorney General? I think that... Are they extremists or not, Attorney General? Everything in that memo is Are they extremists or not? I'm asking a simple question. Say no if you think that was wrong. Catholics are not extremists. No. Now, the crazy thing about that exchange, beside the substance, is that Jeff Andrew was a Democrat until December 2019. He'd never have acted like that. Now he feels he has to, I guess. But to really gauge what Garland was up against, listen to this exchange with Representative Andy Biggs and ask yourself, wait, what is Biggs talking about? Here we go. It's about a minute. Happened under the previous administration. That's so logically fallacious. I'm sorry, I'm not following what's Yeah, I know you're not following. So, So the question is, you... You've got one of your deputy U.S. attorneys calling the attorney on this side saying, look, we, there's, we're going to go to these two places. 
uh, probably go in the next couple of days. And, of course, then ultimately the search warrant is called off. Is that, I just want to know, is it consistent to call up people and where you know that they've got boxes of information or you suspect they have boxes of information? That's why you got the warrant. That's why you're going to go look. And you give them a heads up so they can move those boxes of information. Would that be consistent with DOJ policy? I'm just going to say again, you're asking me actually to comment about allegations in a particular case about. I'm just, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm asking you, is that consistent with your overall policy? Forget, forget Delaware and what they did and that they actually did that. Let's just talk about generic I'm policy. So, I'm sorry. I thought you were asking about Mar-a-Lago. I, I may not have understood that. I'm oh, sorry. yeah. La-di-da. La-di-da, and so it goes. The hearing lasted five and a half hours. I played you the important parts. Not much else was learned. On the show today, Hassan Minaj and the truth of comedians. But first, we continue our conversation with activist and member of the Austin Human Rights Commission, Alicia Roth-Weigel, about her new book, Inverse Cowgirl. Today, we talk about the stats. Just how big is the intersex community? We talk about her interview with Steven Crowder. Eh, had to bring it up. Alicia Roth Weigel up next. And it goes We're back and joined once more by Alicia Roth Weigel, who is the author of the memoir, Inverse Cowgirl. And I want to start by talking about numbers. You say, activists say, this is the number that gets cited. 2% of the world's population is intersex. It's actually 1.7%. But then you round it up to 2%. You say, that's about the same percentage as there are redheads in the world. But this is a widely disputed stat. It usually is the case that advocates want to make their numbers appear as large as they can. You know, there's more of us than you can imagine. And sometimes that's true. But other times with this, I'm not so sure. So let me ask you about it. Congenital adrenal hypoplasia is or accounts for 1.5% of that 1.7%. Late onset congenital adrenal hypoplasia is very contested as to whether to be included in the definition of intersex. The Australian government does, but many hospitals in the United States, the best hospitals, the most understanding and the ones that go most out of their way to treat the intersex community do specifically say intersex individuals who have CAH, that's congenital adrenal hypoplasia, might not be intersex. So the question is, why is it so important to include that 1.5% in the 1.7% to make it seem that there are more people than there very well might be who are intersex? Shouldn't the efforts of destigmatization be to acknowledge the humanity of everyone, even if they're quote unquote only 0.2% of the population? Well, yeah, for sure. But I would argue that the 2% is actually an undercount as well. Um, because that doesn't include polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, which is a condition that many um, female, XX female women have where they grow facial hair. How is that not an intersex condition? A lot of women might take umbrage with that because again, intersex is such a stigmatized term that people hear that and they're like, no, I'm just a regular girl because no one wants to be part of a community that's only the butt of jokes or is completely invisible or is so heavily stigmatized. But if 
by my definition of what intersex means, by the intersex movement's definition of what intersex means, which is purely that we don't fit neatly in those male and female categories that society leads you to believe are the only options, then PCOS should also be included. And that would right. that would skew the number even larger than 5%. I do agree but with I what think you're saying. people with PCOS are XX chromosomes. Usually, they they are. They are. But again... If there are people with XX chromosomes, did I say XY? I meant to say XX. I'm sorry. No, you didn't. You didn't. I'm just pointing out that the case for you being intersex seems quite solid. XY chromosome, external female genitalia, internal testicles. Depends on who's making the case. I mean, if this is a woman growing facial hair, she has physical sex traits and characteristics that don't fit neatly in that male or female category. Yeah, but if we... that's fine. If there was no stigma, if there were no attacks, would that be would that be a solid uh, assessment of someone with PCOS? Or, or maybe you should ask, you know, would it matter? Yeah, that's what it. If there if there was no stigma and there was no attacks, like I don't think any of us would need these categories. Not just in terms of like intersex, but even races, which have been, you know, created by society. Yeah. But I guess the downside is if someone looked very much into the definition and then said, oh, I think there's a lot of exaggeration right. going on. I hear what you're saying. Even, yeah, that could undermine the overall message. And you're a professional messenger. So <laughs> my question is more about the the calculation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so again, I believe the, you know, by my definition, by the, the, the definition that most intersex people in the movement use, it's larger than 2% because it's just people that don't fit neatly into those male and female categories. We have sex traits of which facial hair is also a sex trait, um, that doesn't fit neatly into that, that male or female binary. So it depends on who, who we're giving the, opportunity to define us. And that's something that I know my mom said too, when my mom was testifying at the New York city council originally, she, she used to be a nurse and she was talking about how even as a nurse, like she got like no information on how to, to treat people like me, but she's like, intersex people have been so defined by other people in ways that can find them. Um, I think it's time to let us (laughs) define who we are. And if by our own definition, it's, not fitting into those boxes, then it's going to be a lot larger than 2%. I would agree with you, though, that even if it were just 0.0001%, we should still care. Yeah. So I have, I now have another question about the overall alliance. And in the book, you write about how some people in the LGBTQIA space want to say plus instead of IA, or they want right. to deny, they want to rebut the idea that intersex uh, belongs in the acronym, but also in the entire movement. You know, you should know how, that I think flat out that in the book you write, there's a phrase that we're not disordered, we're whole in our own right. And I, of course, believe in that and destigmatization, and I believe in uh, trans rights. But there is this interesting disconnect, in a way, between your situation or the situation of intersex people and the situation of trans people, in that trans people want medical intervention to affirm their identities, but you wanted a prevention of medical intervention to affirm your identity. So no, we I just, just yeah. we just want it until an age of consent where a child can be meaningfully part of that conversation. So if a trans 
teenager wants to have those procedures, just like if an intersex teenager wanted to have those procedures, then they should have access. But that it's, it certainly should not, the same procedures trans people are fighting for should not be forced on someone who's literally an infant. Right. But as I look at it, there's the aspect of it where states are getting in the way you're asking the state to come in to prevent a medical intervention, even though your parents and doctors thought that medical intervention was appropriate. In states like yours in Texas, there are bills to prevent a medical intervention that parents and doctors, because the uh, children are too little in your case, the state is trying to get in the way of parents and doctors making a decision that they think is medically uh, inappropriate. It is it is a messaging alignment that needs to happen. And and the message needs to be that we all deserve autonomy over our own bodies. We all deserve to make decision making over our own bodies. Um, People who want these procedures with consent should have access to those procedures. People who have never asked for these procedures should not have them forced upon them. It seems really simple. By keeping it more complicated, it enables certain people who believe that we should all not be trans and not be intersex and not be gay and whatever to keep us fitting in in their categories that they're more comfortable with. So because this is a podcast, even though I'm looking at you right now, uh, the listeners won't know about your presentation. So I'll quote from something that you said in your testimony to the legislature. I stand here today representing the I in LGBTQIA in the hopes that because I look more gender normal in the current societal conception of what that means, you might hear my words in a different light. And my question is, I've been to your Instagram feed, and there are a lot of pictures of you as a pretty 33-year-old being a pretty 33-year-old. Is Do you do that for reasons other than why someone who is uh, 33 years old and posts pictures of themselves looking attractive, do you do that strategically uh, beyond the egotistically or to get a date? reasons i think it's i think it's yeah i think it's multifold. the the get a date yeah it <laughs> helps um the 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 other thing though is like being intersex we're often like really desexualized and we're taught that like our bodies are gross and a problem and so even like reclaiming our own sexuality is is a big part of of my activism like we deserve to be seen as desirable human beings despite what society has told us for many years Um, and yes, I do use it strategically. Um, a lot of people have a conception of what trans means, uh, what gender means, what all of these things mean. And when they meet me, then I make them question all of those things. And I think I write about this in my book as well, that on the Crowder interview that you referenced earlier, there were so many comments of these, these men usually being like, oh, I think Alicia's hot. Does that make me gay? Because she has XY chromosomes. And it's like, and it's like, well, it's, it's funny. And it's also, it's like, oh my gosh, like we're, we're getting these people thinking about what sexuality means, what gender means, like, what are we using to define all of these things when all in all, we're all just humans. If you're attracted to someone, you should be with that person you're attracted yeah. to. The simpler answer is, yeah, bro, it totally makes you gay. What are you going to do now? <laughs> it is, yeah. So wh- I, sure. I think you quoted a doctor or someone saying that many intersex patients, uh, people that he or she is treated with your specific condition grow up, grow up to become models. Why is that? It is interesting, right? Um, yeah. A lot of us are really uh, pretty in society's current definition of what that means. 
Uh, I'm not sure why. I'd have to ask God that one, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Maybe he's like, you know, like we're making these people extra special. It's like, you know, and that's how I view my body in general now. It's like the fact that my testes would have produced testosterone and then converted it to estrogen. Like that's pretty damn cool. Like not everyone can say that. But is there something about, I don't know, jawline, facial shape, uh, right. waist ratio. Does that come into I'm play? not sure. I mean, I, I think it, it might. Again, if we do more research, maybe we can figure that out. But yeah, a lot of us do end up becoming models for sure. When you convince people who aren't already inclined to, you know, be waving a pride flag, what are the arguments that do it? Or is it just mostly knowing you as a person? I think that my arguments, my logical arguments plant the seeds. And then again, it was like those guys on that YouTube comments, like the, them asking that question, that's planting the seed of them thinking about it all more. And maybe they'll never change their views. But or maybe it'll take them a long time. But so in certain way, I think the, the logical arguments plant the seed, not just of intersex acceptance, but of acceptance, as you mentioned, of the broader LGBTQI plus community. And I think knowing me as a person, um, yeah, it probably accelerates the process. Like I'm pretty cool, I'm pretty fun. <laughs> the last thing I would say is that Crowder interview very much annoyed me because I like a good argument, even if it's a tough argument, and he wasn't making a good argument. But yeah. man, does he think he's making a good argument. So I guess yeah. most people who criticize Crowder and uh, Ben Shapiro, this do do so from the perspective of you know these guys were wrong born wrong and are always wrong but you know i'm the kind of person who says hey when they make a good argument i'll acknowledge it he had right. a sign that said there are two genders convince me i'm wrong was that it or was there are two sexes convince me i'm wrong it was there are two genders and yeah. so what i was trying to help him understand is that if there are bodies that are born in between why would it not make sense that there are minds that also function in between yeah, and at one point he said something like, well, there are human beings are born with two legs. Now, there's right. someone who's born with one leg, but that doesn't mean that humans are born with two legs, to which I just wanted to scream at him. But Stephen, if you had a sign that said humans are always born with two <laughs> legs, convince me otherwise, and I, right. a one-legged person came up, wouldn't you have to at least change the sign? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it. I think it, it, you know, he's not out here to have his mind changed. He's that's not, for sure. I would think. But that's some people sure. are. I mean, is it more, I don't know, in the in recent years, has it become more um, frustrating? Or do you see openings that society, or Texas society even, is more open to having their mind changed? I think a mixture of both. There's obviously the rising polarity and that's stoked by a variety of things. And so I appreciate this ability to have a conversation with you because I know that you do really ask the good questions and you don't align maybe as squarely in one camp or another as, as I might. But um, I, I think there, in some ways we're becoming more po polarized. And I think because of media and social media, people are out there more or less to confirm what they already believe. However, I think if we can all, I, and I write about this in my book, like my greatest hope is that we as a society realize, and this was something that frustrated me with Crowder too, that being polite is not as important as being honest, open-minded, curious, like that, that's the society I want to see where we're less focused on polite, like, oh, did you 
shake my hand like you were supposed to? Did you curtsy for the queen? And more concerned with like, oh, this person is being truthful with me. And this person is open to hearing my side and open to challenging their own thoughts and belief systems. Um, that's, those are the people I most like being around. And those are the values that I hope we can all raise in subsequent generations of humans. Yeah, I would personally say that politeness is not a virtue necessarily to pursue, but something like depolarization is. So there's a way to have depolarization as your North Star without uh, emphasizing etiquette. And there's also a way to have tons of etiquette while being still entirely polarized. Exactly. So I agree with you. I don't think it's about politeness. I think sometimes depolarization is the opposite of social activism. But I also think that if you're saying true things, um, you're—I don't know if you're going to win, but that's the right position to take. Yep, agreed. Like, let's uh, make America truthful again. Alicia Roth Weigel is the author of Inverse Cowgirl, a memoir. She's on the Austin, Texas Human Rights Commission. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Other than being funny, what is the obligation of the comedian? Is it to shed light, be moral, tell truths, tell the truth? Over the weekend, a New Yorker article by Claire Malone exposed the comic Hassan Minaj as exaggerating and concocting stories that placed him and his family at the center of events in which he wasn't involved and facing attacks which did not actually occur. Minaj was the host of the Netflix show Patriot Act, which used humor to criticize world leaders and U.S. businessmen. He has a stand-up style that emphasizes showmanship and exuberance over, say, pure joke writing. In his latest Netflix special, The King's Jester, Claire Malone found inconsistencies. Still, all his skills were on display. He's handsome. He's charismatic. At four or five times during the last special, he lowered his voice to an emphatic whisper, drawing the crowd in not to get a laugh, but to underline a point. It worked. The audience seemed to love Minaj, not just comedically. He showed photos of his family. But this photo is my favorite including he and his wife cradling his newborn daughter. And I'm holding the baby. And Bina's holding me. (laughs) And she goes, can you believe it? We're finally a family. It had the desired effect, not since the Emanuel Lewis show Webster has a purported comedy been so willing to substitute a laugh track for an awe track. Minaj wants to do something other than inspire laughter. I'm sure he would say, do something more than inspire laughter. He constructed the special with audio-visual elements and visual effects, ambitious camera moves that you won't find in other comedy specials. It veers into memoir and one-man show. The through line is Minaj weighing commitment to family versus commitment to causes. Notice I didn't say commitment to the bit. Lots of comedians talk about how they see humor in areas where their wives or husbands or other family members don't, and that itself is a comedic conceit. Minaj guides the audience through his fights with the famous and the infamous on television and at a Time magazine gala, and he documents his wife's dissatisfaction with him for chasing clout and reveling in the attention his criticisms of, say, Jared Kushner and the Saudis garner. 
The New Yorker reported that details of each of those fights are inventions. And up until the end, you might forgive Minaj. It's a pretty good ride, especially if you're on board for that sort of thing. And after all, comedians exaggerate for comedic effect. Possibly, they leave out complicating details. It's comedy. It's not documentary. But by the end of the special, Minaj breaks the trust he has established with the audience and in fact betrays the audience. He tells the story of, after trying so hard to start a family and after taking excess satisfaction in the attention he gets for tweaking the famous, he then arrives at his apartment and he asks the doorman for the mail. I go, give me my fan mail, Carlos. He grabs a stack of letters. He hands them to me. I rip it open. I flip it over. And all this white powder falls into the stroller. And it falls on my daughter's shoulder. Her neck, her cheeks. And she's staring at me. And I run upstairs and I tell Bina. And this time I can't lie. He's not remotely playing this for laughs. Minaj throws the comedy car into park because he is making a point, a serious point. He's sharing his lowest moment. He takes us to the hospital where he and his wife wait in agony to see if his baby is going to be harmed. Because he is a compelling performer, the audience is very, very invested. So when the verdict is delivered, there is relief and revelation. Finally, around midnight, nurse comes in and she's holding my daughter. But she's with an investigator. And the investigator reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a plastic baggie filled with white powder. He goes, Mr. Minhaj, you're very lucky. This isn't real anthrax. But I've been in this department long enough to know this shit just doesn't come out of nowhere. So I have to ask you something, young man. Who on earth have you been antagonizing? The audience gets it. That is what his wife has been saying all along. And Minaj understands. Minaj makes a vow to put his family first, seeing the near horror visited upon them. And none of it happened. He made up the white powder. He made up the emergency room. He made up the investigator who said, I've been around long enough to know that subjects of anthrax attacks have something to answer for. Yeah, that was maybe a little odd or off. In the article in The New Yorker, Minaj spoke of emotional truths. But this is a clear case of emotional lies. And in case you were wondering if Minaj may somewhere in the special make the case for giving him some leeway, here's the near culmination of the King's Jester. Everything here tonight is built on trust. Why do you think I'm performing in this LED skate park? <laughs> I look ridiculous. Everything here is built on trust. You trust me. I trust you. The audience would be right to feel betrayed. Minaj tells the New Yorker he has received hate mail and death threats, which I don't disbelieve, but he has elevated his own victim status in the name of cheap drama. He made us care about his journey to parenthood. He got us to coo and oo over his baby. He spun a tale of her life in peril in order to play on the audience's emotions. I suppose some of his fans will forgive him. Some responded to me when I tweeted a few other minor discrepancies I found in the special. They said, come on, it's comedy. But it's not comedy. Minaj wanted it to be more than comedy. 
In fact, it wound up being a lot less. It's a manipulation. And I don't care because I'm some comedy purist who adheres to a strict taxonomy of what counts as comedy and what doesn't. I'm just judging Hassan Minaj by his own standards. What's truth? What's actually true? And what's emotionally true? This act is neither. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Dupru. Thank you for listening. Oh, well. <laughs> la-di-da, la-di-da, la-la, yeah.